Vajna Sparks, a podcast where we listen to a Dharma teaching, contemplate through conversation and song, and engage in guided meditation. In this episode, we focus on Buddha's first teaching, the Four Truths. This peace so profound, this unpolluted, uncreated clear light, this nectar-like dharma that I have found. To whomever I may teach it, it would remain an enigma. So I will remain silent and stay here alone in the forest. These are the words that the Buddha Shakyamuni uses to describe his mindset after enlightenment when he still remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree and reveled in the experience of awakening. The direct experience alive to him felt so subtle, so nuanced, so beyond, that even in the afterglow of enlightenment, he was at a loss how he would transmit this to others. And indeed, he spent seven weeks alone in the forest, remaining silent, walking and meditating with this unpolluted, uncreated, clear light, the nectar-like dharma he had encountered directly upon enlightenment. As the story goes, celestial beings, divine spirits, came to him, made offerings, and humbly requested the Buddha to teach, imploring him to have empathy with those who, quote, had little dust in their eyes and would be able to hear what he had to say, despite its subtlety. The Buddha takes this request to heart and tries to think of who might be most receptive, most ripe for the teaching. Initially, he thinks of his spiritual teachers, but they had both passed away. So he then decides to go to a group of five colleagues with whom he'd been engaging in very severe ascetic meditation practices for about six years prior to his leaving them and going to Bodh Gaya to resolutely practice until attaining enlightenment. That Life, of course, is very different than how the Buddha started out. He was a prince of a very wealthy warrior state in the land which we now call Nepal. And he determines that it is these colleagues that are most likely to be receptive to what he has to say. So he undertakes the voyage, walking meditatively as the Buddha did, would have taken quite some time. But he goes to Sarnath. The five colleagues do notice him coming and recognize him from a distance. They, however, still have some resentment and are upset at him for abandoning them and resolve to reject him. As he draws near, there's something very different about him than anyone they've ever seen. He was aglow, golden, brilliant, beautiful. Despite themselves, they cannot help but lay out a seat and ask him to teach. This, of course, is the famous first public discourse of the Buddha, usually translated as the Four Noble Truths, presented in the most widely accessible form as the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta in the Pali Canon. In this month, where Tibetan Buddhists commemorate this first teaching in one of four great holidays of the Buddhist calendar, called Chukarduchen, or the great moment of turning the wheel of Dharma, I thought it would be good to look at this teaching. I'm sure there will be many others describing the four truths, and there are many teachings on the four truths available generally. Tapping the depths and subtleties of this teaching would take a lot more than the time we have in this podcast, so I want to look at something very particular And yes, you got it. It's about a word. This word, true, or truth, which is the term used to describe the four principles that the Buddha perceives directly in enlightenment 
And upon seeing that with precision and clarity, he was able to recognize himself as enlightened. We'll talk in a minute about what those four true things are, these things that are true to those who are noble. And noble here just means realized. This title, Four Noble Truths, literally just means four true things we encounter upon realization. This term true, though, can seem a little awkward nowadays. Perhaps we think we're being arrogant, saying this is the truth, and all these other traditions have it wrong. Or perhaps we think that there is no one truth, or that all truths are one. It's important, before we even look at what the Buddha has to say, that we understand what he means by true. Interestingly, the English word is actually, in and of itself, quite accurate. Its original meaning in Old English and German relates to faithful or trustworthy. These old European terms have roots in Indo-European languages that English holds in common with Sanskrit. So, for example, the word daruna or daru, hard, wood, related to tree, something that is solid and uplifting, relates to this term true. When we speak of true in this context, it is less about what accords with fact or accuracy and more about what is steady, firm, dependable, trustworthy. What is something that is proper and fit for a particular purpose? Something that is sincere and unfeigned. When we think of these four true things, these are four things that, upon realization, are discovered to be fit, useful, proper, like a finely crafted arrow that is true in that when it is released from this finely crafted bow, it goes straight to the bullseye without falling short, without wavering, without overshooting and missing the mark. It is something that can be relied upon, that can be trustworthy for a particular purpose. That is how the Buddha is teaching throughout his career, beginning right here and now this first public discourse on turning the wheel of the Dharma. He is saying these are true things in the context of attaining liberation from samsara and omniscience. Samsara, of course, is that cyclic existence of perpetual birth, aging, illness, death, birth, aging, illness, death, birth, aging, illness, death, that comes about from the whirlpool of being stuck in kleshas, which are intentions that are askew with respect to the true nature of things, and drive action, which means karma influenced by those intentions, and necessarily yield dukkha, a kind of dissatisfaction recognizable in various degrees. The Buddha is teaching in a very contextual way. He is not saying what I say is true and what everybody else says is false. He is speaking to those who are already interested in his path. He's speaking to those that he has selected as ripe, ready, interested, and receptive in what he personally has to say. And then he says, this is what is true for you, you who seek liberation and omniscience. There's a lot to say about it, but I'd like to do a bird's eye view, get right to the heart essence of He starts out by saying, it's not the life of luxury or the life of extreme asceticism that leads to enlightenment. It's the middle way that avoids the extreme of self-indulgence on one end or self-harm on the other. That's the way to go. And when I followed that way, I learned four things to be true. He doesn't then propound a dogma, things to believe or ask us to believe him to be some kind of unreachable divine entity. Rather, he says, come and see. Try this out. Here's a fourfold plan. 
that you can put into effect and see for yourself what happens. What is that fourfold plan? In a nutshell, he says, recognize true suffering. Uproot its true origin. Actualize its true cessation by relying on the true path. This encapsulates all he has to say about samsara and nirvana. If we look at it, we find that the very infrastructure of this teaching is profound. In the first two true things, usually called the truth of suffering and the truth of the origin of suffering, the Buddha lays out the architecture for samsara, cyclic existence, by identifying the result we experience, dukkha, which, as I say, is often translated as suffering, but means more than just our immediate connotation of pain and discomfort. In fact, the Buddha later describes dukkha as not just obvious pain and discomfort, but even experiences of pleasure which are unfulfilling, unsatisfying, not only because they will ultimately end, but because of just how much effort it takes to get there, and because even as they are occurring, they are disrupting the natural tranquility of mind, which is defined by sukha, the counterpoint to dukkha, which itself means a blissful ease, an ability to remain in a contented, alive, blissful state irrespective of what's happening, independent of conditions. The pleasures we have in our life always depend on something, somebody being there, something else happening, things coming together in a certain way, and more than anything, our own attitude. We all know what it's like to encounter something that we normally think is lovely, perhaps a beautiful sunrise or sunset on the beach. But if we're in a difficult state of mind, we may not even notice it, much less feel pleasure at experiencing it. So sukha is a well-being, a happiness, a contentment, and a bliss that is easeful in that we don't have to go through all this rat race stuff to attain it. It is in and of itself perfect and complete. In addition, the Buddha describes a third kind of dukkha, one that we don't even necessarily notice, which consists of basically an underlying vulnerability to experiencing things as either obvious dukkha or this shifty dukkha that feels like pleasure, but is always undercut by our inability to control whether we find it how long it lasts, and is always dependent on conditions beyond our reach. So that's the first of the fourfold plan. Recognize true suffering. So what the Buddha is saying there with that true right there is don't just focus on what is obvious. Any animal knows what pain is, what discomfort is. Go deeper. Recognize the discontent, even in what feels pleasurable. In other words, don't satisfy yourself with anything less than what you are. The state of pristine bliss and ease that is sukha, the state of nirvana. Then he says, there is a true origin to this true dukkha, and defines that as tanha, in Sanskrit, craving. There's a sense of thirst, compulsion, or obsession to tanha, a craving that possesses us rather than empowers us or encourages. So the Buddha is identifying a cause to the result that we are experiencing. In other words, the Buddha is meeting us here and now. That's one of the first things we learn about the Dharma. First, it's maturational. The rightness of our mind that encounters a dharma is relevant. The Buddha chooses his audience with care. 
because there's a maturity that occurs on a spectrum. That maturity is one where we progress from right where we are to where the path takes us. In addition, Dharma is relational. It matters to the Buddha that he has a connection to the audience to whom he's speaking, that they have an interchange with him where they are in an attentional state that makes that teaching dynamic and engaging for them. As we see with this very first true thing, the Buddha meets us right where we are. The Dharma is experiential. It's not about something that we have no access to, something we cannot understand. The Buddha does not start out talking about this unpolluted, uncreated, clear light. He talks about what we know, suffering. And then he goes deeper. As he continues to explain dukkha and its cause, he then turns to the fact that there is a cessation to dukkha, a true cessation, by eliminating dukkha, the linchpin of that cycle of birth, aging, illness, death, which itself comes from the cycle of Klesha Karma Dukkha, we blast this architecture of samsara to smithereens, and we're left with nirvana, the freedom from that cycle of Klesha Karma Dukkha, complete freedom from Dukkha, such that it can never recur. We are not only free of experiencing dukkha, but we've eliminated all of the causes that generate it. We've eliminated the kleshas, negative intentions that drive negative actions and lead to any of the various kinds of dukkha. So there is a true cessation. Then he describes not only the result that's possible, nirvana, but the cause, the true path So the Buddha, in these four true things, is laying out, in the first two, the architecture of samsara, in the second two, the architecture of nirvana. And he's doing that in the form of cause and result in each of those pairs. The true origin, craving being the cause of the result, dukkha, which is samsara, and the path being the cause for the result, the true cessation, which is nirvana. So then what is this path? This true path, the path that is true because you can count on it. It has been finely crafted and honed so that when you let it fly, it will hit its mark without falling short, without overshooting, and without faltering. What is that path? This is the famous eightfold path right view, right intention or thought, right speech, right action, right lifestyle, right effort, right meditation, and right concentration. Here too we have another controversial term, right. Nowadays, this is often rendered as wise or skillful. Again, there's this sense of political correctness. We don't want to say something is right and you're wrong or I'm wrong. But again, while wise and skillful are accurate descriptions of these aspects of the path, it misses that sense of upright, of integrity, of being in a harmonic with what is true and the sense of fit for that aim. Think about what you consider to be true, what you consider to be right. In many ways, what the Buddha is saying is, we all want true happiness, true freedom from suffering. There's nothing wrong with us. The difficulty is that we don't find the right ways to meet what is true, to harmonize with what is true. Let me give you a fourfold plan for how to do that. Recognize true suffering. Eliminate its true origin. Actualize its true cessation by relying on this true path. 
been so helpful. I've always heard about the Four Noble Truths in terms of content. And something I really appreciate about what you're saying here is there's a lot about what the Buddha was teaching in terms of the context of what he was teaching and how he was doing that teaching as well. And so I really liked your piece about Dharma being maturational, relational, and experiential. And, and I've got a couple questions about those pieces. You were talking about it being relational and, and having that connection, maybe. And you said that the Buddha was very thoughtful in terms of choosing who he was going to share these teachings with. So both in terms of the relational and maturational, I feel like there's this piece of who is ready for the teachings and in what context does that happen? And so maybe you can talk a little bit more about how that happened initially and maybe how that relates to how we do those kinds of things now. I mean, I think what those two pieces go to is very much the fact that Dharma is always embedded in a context typically a cultural context, because Dharma made its way through various countries and cultures and is now encountering the biggest boom in, in many ways by encountering Western culture. But it always remains this very relational and maturational process in the sense that the way we encounter Dharma through teachings is necessarily one of engaging with the teacher, with fellow students, with our own mind, and also one where we start where we are and we progress. The Buddha always taught in a gradual progression. That's not to say that there aren't some folks who, by strength of practice in previous lives, is the explanation in Buddhism, they hear the teachings and immediately get it or immediately uh, connect. But typically for most of us, it's a progression. It's something that goes over time and in a stepwise fashion. So the very same teaching, for example, the four truths, is something we can encounter at different points of our spiritual path and get a very different amount of content out of our particular context. Because one of the things I love about the Buddha's teaching is how layered and embedded it is within itself. I love to say that it's like a hologram where every piece of the film is able to produce the entire image. Every little piece of the Buddha's teaching, even a small fraction of one piece of the four truths is able to give life to the full range of 50 some years of teaching within our own mind, if that's what we're ready and able to encounter. So this leads to an even more important thing about the Dharma, the fourth piece. It's always realizational. We can talk about Dharma as scriptural Dharma, the stuff on the page or the sound waves of the words, and the realizational Dharma, what we are living and actually able to transmit through our understanding, through our conduct, through our practice. Can you say more about that? realizational piece. I want to make sure I understand what, what you mean by that. There's a difference between us talking about the four truths and us actually engaging that path and encountering the way it unfolds within our own minds. So one of the beautiful things about this teaching is that the very sequence of these truths is a teaching in and of itself. The Buddha doesn't start out by saying, hey, there's a nirvana and it's an incredibly wonderful, peaceful, profound, uncreated, clear light. He could have started with that, but he already knew that's so far afield. That's so intangible. It's so attenuated. So he starts out right where we are. He starts out with what we have experience of. That's the experiential piece. We all know what it is to have discomfort, to have discontent, disappointment, lack of fulfillment. Everywhere from the spectrum of absolute pain to this existential angst that we might have in our life. So he starts out with that experience and he explains, well, you know what? You don't have to settle for that. When you read the sutra, as he goes through the teachings, the colleagues who are listening are really starting to imbibe this. By the end of the sutra, one of them has gotten it, and they call him Kondana, who understands. 
that is that moment of the dharma turning turning the wheel of dharma means the mind actually going from scripture to own experience to the realization blossoming right within that mind that's fantastic i i um i love that imagery of the turning of the wheel of dharma and and i love that there's four noble truths in in the content and and then you've talked about how there's four things about the dharma that we can understand through that also let me make sure I'm getting all this. There's there's a maturational part in terms of a readiness um, for the teaching. And at the same time, it's not necessarily, are you ready to hear this? But what are you ready to get out of it? And that there's different things you can get out of it at different levels of readiness. Is that right? That's right. And that's why it's so rich. This one teaching will serve you for the rest of your life. It will just keep opening itself up like that beautiful lotus right within your mind, layer by layer, petal by petal, until it is a fully blossomed lotus of realization. That maturation isn't just about where we are when we first encounter the teachings, but that relational process of the Dharma starts to work on us. It catches us at whatever moment of maturity it encounters us and continues to ripen us. So the relationship of the Dharma, the relational quality actually affects the maturational quality. How does it do that? Out of the experiential quality, right out of our own lives, out of our own experimenting with the Dharma and finding how it impacts us out of our own inner dialogue of, well, does this mesh or does this not mesh? If it doesn't mesh, why doesn't it? Am I mm -hmm. kidding myself or is the Buddha just on the wrong track? What's going on here? All of these parts of themselves are relational. So all of these parts together, these first three parts are what over time develop into the realizational dharma, not just words on a page or sound waves that strike our eardrums, but our own living, breathing embodiment of the dharma. And, and so maybe then the realizational is every piece of the teaching has the potential to generate that realization in an individual. Is, does, is that a way of thinking about it? One of the things that's, for me, very sad is we have a sad lack of mystery in our lives these days. The modern world is so tied to what can be seen or heard or measured. And there's something mysterious and magical and completely immeasurable that happens within mind as we encounter these incredible teachings. They operate on a level that is very different than the kind of learning or study that we normally do in a very linear context and everyday subjects. There's something about the Dharma that operates on that level where the realization is happening in sometimes ways that we don't even consciously know of. So a simple kernel of the teachings is enough to grow. Of course, by itself, it will not grow as much as if you're actively engaging it. But I do feel that it, there is something very precious and something nearly magical, definitely mysterious about how the Dharma infiltrates and penetrates and blooms in the mind. I'm really struck by this blossoming imagery because if we look at the Tibetan word for Buddha, which is Sangye, Sang means clean, pure, pristine, and Gye means to blossom. So there's a twofold aspect to Buddhahood. There's the part of clearing away all the gunk that was already superficial to mind all of the negative intentions, the karmic actions that go from that, all of the dukkha, the discontent, but also this sense of blossoming, the realization and the pristine qualities that were already mind's nature, but closed tight in a bud and not accessible, opening up through that mystery and the cultivation that the Dharma brings. When you talk about the things that we can't necessarily grasp immediately, you know, the mystery of it. It seems like that's something in the teachings, but also sometimes in the teachers, in the people who, who we might be encountering who have these teachings. And I know that I've had that experience sometimes in encountering people who I just go, whoa, they've got some serious juju, you know? <laughs> and 
do we only encounter that when we're ready to experience it? Is that there all the time? I'm just kind of curious a little bit more about that dynamic. When we encounter someone who has birthed even a tiny bit of realization, there's something different about them. It really gives us a feel for that realizational dharma when we encounter it in a teacher or another being. One of the things that a teacher does for us is they hold up a mirror saying these qualities of realization are not something that I have a copyright on. It's not something that you don't have access to. I'm up here and you're down there. And at the same time, we can recognize I have the potential, I have the ability, I have the nature that develops into that. And yet I haven't quite done that yet. I haven't engaged the practice to the extent that I've completely manifested that realization. So there's this really beautiful dance of both recognition of our own potential and the humility of not having made the most of it. And that, again, goes back to the maturation equality. Even how that progression works, how that maturation develops is very individual. Some people encounter one teaching of the Dharma, and it just stays in their mind, maybe not even very consciously for most of their life or even all of their life. One of the things that happens from a Buddhist standpoint is we're working on the scale of multiple lives. We don't have that same stopwatch going of, oh, I only got about 20, 30 years left. <laughs> when is this going to happen? The Dharma is able to be infinitely patient because there is nothing else that can happen with mind except for its achieving its full potential as long as there is that motivation, that inspiration and that active engaging of mind and practice. We can be as patient as we like, because that maturation might happen in this life. It might not happen for many lives, but it's there. That seed is always present. That's great thinking about the maturational process, the relational process, experiential, realizational, because I think that that unfolding, sometimes the teachings tell us about the, the end point of where we're getting to, but the path of getting there, I think is, I don't know, I, I feel like for myself, I have a sense of the things to do, but I don't always know how it's going to unfold exactly. And it sounds like that's the nature of it in a way. Yes. I mean, there's certainly a lot of teachings in all of the Buddhist traditions that give a lot of detail on how the path unfolds. To give an example, in the context of the Mahayana teachings, there are said to be five paths, which start out with accumulation. You actually turn towards the Dharma. You start to engage the practice. You're inspired by the scriptural Dharma to do something, and you accumulate practice. You accumulate merit. You put in the time. You show up, and you do the practice. That leads you to a path of junction, where the accumulation starts to connect more with realization. You start to get glimmers, glimpses, a real sense of, oh, there's something here. Some of those layers start to come off. You're a little more connected in a less indirect sense to those qualities that are part of mind. Then there's the path of seeing that first moment of direct realization of the true nature of things, which the Buddha calls shunyata, the emptiness in which we encounter as interdependence. Then there's a path of cultivation where the realized being continues to cultivate familiarity with that realization. And then there's the path of no more learning, which is Buddhahood itself. But then if you look at the path of cultivation, that breaks down into several levels. There's 10 bhumis or levels for the bodhisattvas, and each one of them is characterized by different events. These are all very wonderful models and structures that help humans who have an infinite capacity for complexity to understand something that's very simple and as close as the end of their nose. So there's a lot of description, there's a lot of detail, there's even a lot of debate that goes on around all of these things. And yet at the same time, while those are milestones or general ideas of how the path works, it's still completely individual. Just like if we're all taking that beautiful Pacific Coast Highway path from Southern California up to Northern California. It's the same exact road, 
but everybody in every vehicle, be it a car or a bicycle or walking is gonna have a completely different experience of the same road, the same scenery, the same situation because of their own mindset, because of their own individual context. And then you end up at Esalen, which is basically Nirvana, right? In, <laughs> um, analogy. <laughs> or something. <laughs> or, or something. <laughs> So I want to acknowledge that this month is our one year anniversary of the podcast. I was thinking about, you know, when you're talking about turning the wheel of Dharma and and the request to turn the wheel of Dharma, because that's really something in this tradition where, you know, people don't just like go out there and teach. It's, It's upon request. It's people wanting and thirsting for that. And I was just thinking as you were talking about this, how because of the pandemic, you started doing teachings online. I was able to attend one of your teachings mm-hmm. and I said, oh my gosh, you're amazing. <laughs> I want more people to hear this. And that that's really how this came about, that, that I did recognize something in you as a teacher that really lit something up inside me. And I really wanted more people to have access to that. And so I just want to express my appreciation to you for playing along and saying, okay, I'll do this. And and we've been putting this out there to folks. I hope that other people are getting, people will get different things at different levels of readiness is what I realized. And so people might be having very different experiences of this than I am, but I feel like I've just been getting so much out of this. So thank you for your teachings that you've been offering. Oh, thank you for your enthusiasm. It always makes all the difference. As you've heard me say countless times, I always, always am completely certain that I get a lot more out of this than I'm able to give. But it's wonderful to hear that something gets through. And I attribute that completely to the magic of the Buddha and the Dharma and the lineage masters. Yeah. And I think that brings me back to that word true, because I feel like what you teach rings true. And, and I know that you said this isn't about true in opposition to false, you know, so it's not necessarily that like this seems, you know, right and other things seem wrong, but that this resonates. Like what you are offering really resonates for me. And for me, that's a way of sort of assessing the trueness of it, I guess. I think there's a lot to that. Spiritual paths are very beautiful. The endpoints described are magnificent, and yet they're still challenging. But most of the challenge comes from our ingrained habit of believing that we are smaller than we are. When something rings true, it's actually encouraging us to break out of those limitations and to go to a very sometimes unsupported space, a groundless space where we are accountable for ourselves and to others at once. This is no easy feat. So this is why the trueness is so important. When we resonate with the teachings in that way, with the realization and a teacher in that way, that's where we get that steadiness, that sense of trustworthiness that allows us to say, you know what, I am going to take a step out of this enclosed space I've created out of my habits and be willing to fly free like that fledgling little bird coming out of the nest and taking that leap of faith. This has been Yeshe and Tanya. Next, you'll hear Heather with a song and then Zopa offering a guided meditation with Shivni on Tibetan singing bowls. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, our email is sparks at prajnafire.com. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Prajna Sparks. May all beings benefit. For truth, what do they convey? Trustworthiness. The teachings resonate, there's clarity enlightened mind, this is the Dharma realized, this is Dharma. To teach what he had learned Minds ready for truth to be told I know these four things
suffering Number two is the cause Three is cessation for the path The wheel is turning all the time This is the Dharma realized This is Dharma What he had learned Mine's ready for truth to be told I know these four things are true meditation. For this session, we'll be working with meditation as an opportunity to investigate, to experience what is true inwardly for ourselves. As we work with this, I can't stress enough how important it is to bring both a sense of immediacy and expansiveness to our session immediacy because each moment, each session is fresh, unique, and has a fleeting quality. It will not be revisited. Not only that, it's our lifespans very limited. This meditation session is limited. When we bring this to mind, it can give us that directedness that full sense of presence in the moment because we're recognizing how precious it is. It's not the same as any other time. And together with that, we can also bring an expansiveness where we don't have to force, rush, or figure out, but we can just be present with the instructions, present with our mind, Developing, experiencing, calmness, clarity. So to begin, let's just take a moment to settle into our seat, to ground, to really come into the here and now, letting go of whatever else may have been going on in your day, any struggles or delights, and really just feeling your energetic presence on your cushion or your seat, feeling the ground beneath you supporting you, the heavens above that you're uplifted into, that energetic presence. Take a moment to appreciate 
just being embodied here and now in this way. We'll begin with shamatha, calm abiding, tranquility meditation, where we're cultivating one-pointed attention. So we can take the breath as our focal object, just resting our attention on the inflow and outflow of the breath, using that as the anchor to keep our attention bright, sharp, and relaxed. If we get distracted, we just notice that we're distracted and without following it or judging it, just bring our minds back to the breath. So let's practice like that for a minute or so. In this space of clear, alert, undistracted attention, let's experientially look into truth. Is the way that I am living, the things that I am pursuing, true? That is to say, are they yielding the happiness I am looking for? Are they conducive to that happiness? Take a moment now to investigate one-pointedly, keeping your attention in the sphere of this question. How often do I look lovingly at my habits, thoughts, actions, and ways of interacting with the world to see if they are conducive to happiness? How important to make such an inward inquiry a touchstone of our days. Whatever you discover or sense, allow yourself to sit with the experience of it. You don't need to categorize it, articulate it, or solve it. Just rest your attention one-pointedly in the experience.
What insight does this bring me? And now we can move a little bit deeper into the practice, taking the Buddha's guidance as our directive. Can I allow myself the recognition of the truth of discontent, unease, dissatisfaction in the status quo approach to life? Can I do this so that I am naturally organically motivated to seek out and remove the true cause of it, so that my actions are true to my intentions of happiness in a wise and skillful way. Thank you for your practice and for your curiosity, your inquisitiveness, delving with kindness into your own experience. How marvelous. What a wonderful thing to do with a moment, a day, a life. Thank you. Mm -hmm.